Let us turn to the Word of God, to the book of Romans, chapter 9, which you can find on page 1111 in the, your pew Bible. Romans, chapter 9, we will read the first 29 verses. Let us hear the Word of God. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So far, the reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> Congregation, as you know, during the last number of weeks, we have been studying some of our Reformed doctrines in light of the canons of Dort, and we're going to continue that uh, this afternoon. I invite you to turn with me to the next article, which is Article 15 of Chapter 1, Head 1 of the Canons of Dort. You can find this in the back of your Psalter on page 100. 
So the first head of doctrine, Article 15, page 100. And there we confess as follows, what peculiarly tends to illustrate and recommend to us the eternal and unmerciful grace of election is the express testimony of sacred scripture that not all, but some only, are elected, while others are passed by in the eternal decree, whom God, out of his sovereign, most just, irreprehensible and unchangeable good pleasure has decreed to leave in the common misery into which they have willfully plunged themselves and not to bestow upon them saving faith and the grace of conversion but permitting them in his just judgment to follow their own ways at last for the declaration of his justice to condemn and perish them forever not only on account of their unbelief, but also for all their other sins. And this is the decree of reprobation, which by no means makes God the author of sin, the very thought of which is blasphemy, but declares him to be an awful, or we could say awesome, irreprehensible and righteous judge and avenger thereof. Beloved congregation, during the last number of weeks, we have been reflecting together on the doctrine of election, and I trust you will agree with me when I say that the doctrine of election, although it is a scary doctrine to many people, it is still full of comfort for the people of God. According to this doctrine, and as we also confess in the first head of doctrine of our canons of Dort, God would have done no injustice had he allowed the entire human race to perish body and soul in hell because of our sin in Adam. But God, in his infinite grace and mercy, did not do that. Instead, he, out of his goodness, chose a certain number of people out of the whole human race to believe on his Son. And he chose them to do this because, left to themselves, they would never do this. That's how dead in trespasses and sins we are. And by believing on the Lord Jesus, they could receive the pardon of all of their sins and everlasting life. And he chose these people from before the foundation of the world, before they could do anything to earn the favor of God. He chose them solely on the basis of his sovereign good pleasure. But as wonderful and as comforting as this doctrine is, it also has what we might call a dark side. There is a dark side to the doctrine of election, and it is its twin sister. It is the doctrine of reprobation. Maybe you've never heard of that word before. What is reprobation? Let me give you a definition for the doctrine of reprobation. It is God's eternal, sovereign, immutable, that means unchangeable, wise, holy, and mysterious decree, whereby in electing some to eternal life, he passes others by and then justly condemns them for their own sin, and all of this to his own glory. Now, you'll notice from this definition that reprobation is a decree of God. That means it is something that God has willed. It is something that God has determined from all eternity. To put it in more theological language, we could say that the doctrine of reprobation is an aspect of God's decree of predestination. Predestination has to do with God decreeing whatever comes to pass. And when it comes to the salvation of sinners, God has decreed to save some and to pass others by. God's decree to save some is called the doctrine of election. 
and his decree to pass others by is called the doctrine of reprobation. They are like two sides of the same coin. On the one side, you have the head of the monarch, and on the other side, you have, well, if it's a quarter, you have a picture of a moose. And so it is with the doctrine of predestination. You've got election on the one side and reprobation on the other. That means you can't have one without the other. If there is such a thing as election, and we have seen in this series that there is, and the Scriptures clearly teach this, then there must also be a doctrine of reprobation. That simply stands to reason. There is a decree of election. There is also a decree of reprobation. Now, we have an extended description of this doctrine in Article 15, of our, Belgi- of our canons of Dort. And I think it would be helpful if you just opened up to that again because it's a very long sentence. It's almost one sentence and, and it's very long. It's very complicated and there's lots of, of subclauses and, and, and different words that are kind of old-fashioned and it would be good to sort of read this again together. So Article 15 uh, of our canons of Dort. I think it's on page 100. Is that correct? Page 100. So here it goes like this. What peculiarly tends to illustrate and recommend to us the eternal and unmerited grace of election is the express testimony of sacred scripture that not all but some only are elected while others are passed by in the eternal decree whom God, out of his sovereign, most just, irreprehensible, and unchangeable good pleasure, has decreed to leave in the common misery into which they have willfully plunged themselves, and not to bestow upon them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but permitting them in his just judgment to follow their own ways. At last, for the declaration of his justice to condemn and perish them forever, not only on account of their unbelief, but also for all their other sins." And this is the decree of reprobation, which by no means makes God the author of sin, the very thought of which is blasphemy, but declares him to be an awful, irreprehensible, and righteous judge and avenger thereof. Now, if you look at this statement carefully, you'll notice that there are two aspects to the doctrine of reprobation. There is something what theologians call preterition. Preterition. This is the negative side of reprobation. The word preterition is derived from two Latin words, the word praetor, meaning by, and the word ire, meaning to go or to pass. And so preteration refers to the fact that in the salvation of sinners, God sovereignly passes some by. He doesn't save them. He chooses, for whatever reason, not to save them. That's the one side of reprobation. The other side, the other aspect of reprobation is condemnation. This is the positive aspect of reprobation. And by mean, by this we mean that those whom God has passed by in his sovereignty, he also justly and eternally condemns to eternal damnation in hell. So in reprobation, God, for whatever reason, we cannot read the mind of God. We do not know why God chooses some and not others. But in reprobation, God sovereignly passes some by and justly condemns them to hell. Now it goes without saying, congregation, that there are very few people who like to talk about this. There's a part of me, I'll be honest with you, that trembles when I have to preach about this. Because we are here delving into something that is is difficult, if not impossible, for our finite human minds to comprehend. And it's for this reason that there are people who say we should not speak about reprobation. They say we shouldn't even speak about election. 
And we certainly shouldn't speak about reprobation. We should just leave those discussions to the theologians and the seminary. And we certainly shouldn't preach them from the pulpit. And I understand why they say that, because this isn't exactly the most comforting doctrine. It's not comforting. It's not pleasant to come to the realization that God passes certain people by, chooses some but passes others by, and then justly condemns them to hell. Even the great reformer John Calvin, who was not at all ashamed to speak about the doctrine of election and reprobation, he described this doctrine in the Latin phrase, the decretum horribile, which literally translated means the horrible decree. That's why I titled this sermon, The Horrible Decree of Reprobation. It's horrible not because of the decree as such. None of the decrees of God are horrible. Whatever God has decreed is perfectly good and is an expression of who he is. But Calvin here was referring to the consequences of this decree. The fact that, that, God, that those whom God sovereignly chooses to pass by will in the end spend an eternity in hell. And that is horrible. That is the most horrible thing we could ever imagine. So it's in that sense only that this decree of, elect, of reprobation is horrible. The decretum horribile. But as horrible as it may be, congregation, this too is in the Scriptures. We may wish it is not in the Scriptures, but it is in the Scriptures. Even though many ministers won't preach about it, many Christians won't talk about it, but it's in the Scriptures, and, and therefore it's part of the revealed will of God. It's part of that body of truth that God would have us to know and to understand. And therefore it must be studied and it must be preached. So where do we find this in the Bible? Well, significantly, the word reprobation does not appear once in our New King James Version. Although, if you go to the King James, upon which our New King James is based, then you will find that word no less than seven times. But in all of those occurrences, not once does the, do does the word refer to the doctrine as I have described it so far. The Bible uses other words to explain the doctrine of reprobation. It uses words like, like appointed or ordained to condemnation or to destruction. Let me give you a few examples. Turn with me in your pew Bible to 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. You can find that on page 1160. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, page 1160. There the Apostle Paul, and he's speaking about believers now, he's speaking about the Thessalonians. He says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you see what Paul is saying here. He's saying that God does appoint some to wrath and some to obtain salvation. And he's rejoicing in the fact that God has not appointed us, believers, to wrath. Now that's reprobation. It is God appointing people to wrath, to condemnation. Another verse, 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, page 1189. Page 1189. 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. Peter writes this, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But, here's the other side of the coin, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. See that last phrase? So Peter here speaks of those who are appointed to do what? 
What were they appointed by God to do? They were appointed by God to stumble at the Word and to respond to the Word and to the Christ of the Word in disobedience. That's reprobation. Let me give you one more verse. Jude, verse 4, page 1201. Jude, verse 4, page 1201. We read there, For certain men, he's talking about the reprobate now, false teachers, certain men have crept in unnoticed, they've crept into the church unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Now, the King James has it even perhaps a bit stronger. It says, who were ordained to condemnation. So there are people who are ordained by God to condemnation. That's reprobation. Now, the clearest and most comprehensive exposition of this doctrine can be found in the passage of Scripture that we read together from Romans chapter 9. I'd like you to turn to that as well, page 1111. So four ones, Romans chapter 9. If you're at all familiar with Romans 9, you will know that in this chapter the Apostle Paul is seeking to answer the question why it is that the vast majority of the Jews of his countrymen did not come to faith in Christ. And the answer comes in verse 6. Paul says, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So although all of the Jews were the recipients of the covenant promises of God, they all heard the word of God, they all had the law of God, not all of them were chosen. They were all covenant people, but within the covenant, there were some who were chosen to eternal life and those who were not. In fact, the vast majority of them were not. God, in his infinite wisdom, chose to pass by many of his own covenant people. And then from there, Paul goes on to suggest that this should not surprise us. This has always been God's way of dealing with sinners. And to illustrate that, you notice how in verses 7 and 9, he refers us to Isaac and Ishmael. Now, Isaac and Ishmael were brothers. They were both the sons of Abraham. But only one, Isaac, was chosen to be the successor of Abraham and the recipient of the covenant promises of God. Ishmael, what about him? He was passed by. And God did the same with Jacob and Esau, and he refers to them in verses 10 to 13. Again, here we have two brothers. Both brothers, both the sons of Isaac. And what is more, they weren't just brothers, but they were twins. So at least outwardly, you could not get two men who at least outwardly were more similar than Jacob and Esau. But in spite of their similarity... In spite of the fact that they were almost identical, God said that the elder, who was Esau, would serve the younger, who was Jacob. So God chose Jacob, and he passed Esau by. Jacob was chosen. Esau was not. Jacob was one of the elect. Esau was one of the reprobate. In fact, as Paul mentions in verse 13, he quotes God as saying there, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's pretty strong language. And it's also confusing, isn't it? I mean, aren't we commanded to love our enemies? Are we commanded to pray for those who despitefully use us? Isn't that what Jesus taught us? And yet here's God, and he hates Esau. How do we understand this? Well, we need to understand, congregation, that God is holy. And because he's holy, there's no sin in God. 
Now, when we hate somebody, there's always sin involved. Hatred comes from a kind of a malice, an ill intention, an ill feeling towards somebody else because of something that they did. But when God hates, there is no malice. God does not and cannot hate with malice. His hatred is a perfectly holy hatred. So when the Bible says that God hates Esau, it doesn't mean that he that he, he dislikes him. He, he, he regards him with malice. That's impossible for God. It simply means that God looked on Esau with the absence of divine favor. He favored Jacob, but he did not favor Esau. And by favor, I mean he didn't favor him with his saving grace. Now, at this point, you'll notice that Paul anticipates an objection. The objection comes in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is he what Paul's doing? After explaining the fact that God chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau, he's anticipating that somebody hearing this is going to say, but that's not fair. It's not fair for God to choose some and not others. It's not fair for God to choose Jacob and not Esau. If God's going to choose, let him choose, but then let him choose everybody. Let him choose both Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael. And if God doesn't do that, then he's not fair. And so the question is, is there unrighteousness with God? And Paul answers that question most definitively and clearly, certainly not. How can there be unrighteousness with God? He is totally righteous. He is totally holy in all of his works and all of his ways. The King James there actually has God forbid. That's how strong Paul's answer is, God forbid that there be any unrighteousness with God. Well, how do we explain this then, Paul? How do you explain the fact that God chooses some and not others? Look at Paul's answer. Verse 15, he quotes God as saying to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. You see what God is saying? He's saying, I don't owe you an explanation for anything that I do. If I choose to be merciful to this one and not to that one, that's my business, not yours. And what Paul is doing here is he's, he's setting up a picture of God who is absolutely sovereign in everything, including in the work of salvation. God will not be told by you, by me, by anyone whom he should save and whom he should not save. God alone decides this. This is his sovereign choice. And the only way that God could be accused of being unfair or unrighteous is if it could be demonstrated that he is obligated to save everyone. But as we saw the very beginning of this chapter, the very beginning of this head of doctrine, the very first article of this first head of doctrine begins by reminding us that God is not obligated to save anybody. God, in fact, would be perfectly just to condemn every single person to hell. And the fact that he chooses not to but instead chooses to save some, 
is not unrighteousness. It is not injustice. It is mercy. Now Paul goes even further. Just when you think he can't go any further, he goes further. Look at verses 17 and 18. He makes a reference there to Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh, you remember, was the ruler of Egypt who enslaved the people of Israel. And God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And every time Moses came with that demand, Pharaoh refused. And why did Pharaoh refuse? Well, at one level, Pharaoh refused because he hated God. He didn't know God. He even said to Moses, who is this God of whom you speak? He didn't acknowledge God. He was in a state of enmity, of rebellion against God. And for that reason alone, he is, he is completely responsible for his own condemnation. But there's another reason why Pharaoh refused Moses' demand. He refused, Paul says, because God hardened his heart. Why did God do that? Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? He did it for his own glory. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God here tells Pharaoh, this is why I caused you to be born into the world. This is why I caused you to become the Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the ancient Near East. This is why I caused you to consistently, persistently refuse Moses' request to let my people go, that I might display my sovereignty and my power. Now that's difficult. What does Paul mean when he says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Now there are some who say that God deals with the reprobate in the same way that he deals with the elect. So just as God actively works faith and repentance in the hearts of the elect, so he actively works hatred and enmity in the hearts of the reprobate. But there's a problem with that. That makes God the author of evil. And therefore we reject that point of view absolutely. So what does Paul mean? He simply means what he said about Esau. When God said, I hated Esau, what he meant by that was that he he chose not to bestow his gracious favor upon him. In fact, in the case of Pharaoh, God actively withdrew his grace from Pharaoh. With the result that Pharaoh's heart became hardened. Now that would be true for any one of us. You know, the only reason why men don't do more wicked things against each other than they already do is because of God's common grace. God is, in his grace, restraining the evil tendencies of sinners so that society can at least continue to function. Now, we can quibble over whether that's grace or... You know, there are some of the Reformed communities who say, well, that's not grace because grace is necessarily saving. We can quibble over the word. But the doctrine itself is absolutely scriptural. God restrains evil in the world through his common grace. But when God removes that common grace, what happens? Then he leaves men to their own devices. 
He allows them to do what they in their own heart of hearts want to do. God doesn't have to work evil in the heart of the reprobate because the evil's already there. It's in every one of us. Nor will God ever do that because God is holy and good and therefore he cannot be the author of sin. Instead, what does God do? He passes over. He withdraws his good influence, his restraining influence on the hearts of those who are determined to rebel against him. And this is what he did to Pharaoh. When the Bible says God hardened his heart, it's not as though God was actively working unbelief and rebellion in Pharaoh's heart. It's just simply that God withdrew his restraining influence on Pharaoh and left him to do as he wanted to do in his own heart. And God works exactly the same way with the reprobate. God doesn't force, he doesn't coerce the reprobate into rejecting him. He certainly doesn't create evil in their hearts that would lead to such rejection. Instead, he simply withdraws his grace from them. And the result of that is a hardening. A hardening of their heart. But in the final analysis, and we have to admit this, this is part of God's decree. God in his absolute sovereignty has decreed that some will come to faith in Christ and others simply will not. So that's reprobation. And there's a lot more that can be said about this. But I need to stop. And as I bring this sermon to a close, congregation, I want to ask you the question, having heard this doctrine, at least in its basic contours, what is your response to it? You see, because that'll tell a lot about, about the state of our hearts and about what we think of God and our relationship to Him. You see, doctrine is intensely practical. Doctrine is not just theoretical. We're not going through these sermons because we want to delve into the minutiae of the Christian faith. That's not the purpose. That kind of thing theologians can do. And they can write academic articles and books, and that's great, and we need that too. But that's not the purpose of preaching on these doctrines. The purpose of preaching on these doctrines is to elicit a response. That's why I say doctrine is intensely practical. It's not theoretical. It's practical. It demands a response of some kind. And the doctrine of reprobation is no different. And therefore, I ask you this afternoon, what is your response to this doctrine? I said already that there are many people, also many Christians, who reject this doctrine. Now, what does that say about them? What does that say about what they think of God? It says that they can't accept a God who is absolutely sovereign. They don't want to hear that God is absolutely sovereign. They want to hear that man is in control. That we are in control at least partly of our own destiny. That we are the ones who should decide if we are going to be saved or not to be saved. We want to be in the driver's seat. And God in the back seat. And at the very least, our natural inclination is to say that God's choice... If God chooses at all, his choice must be based on something in me. 
It can't just be his sovereign good pleasure. It has to come back to me. There must be some worthiness in me. God must choose me because of my faith, because of my convictions, because of my good works, because of something in me, but not his absolute good pleasure. It's got to be more than that. You see, what happens when we do that? We, we try to make ourselves big and God small. In fact, we try to put God in a box. And we say, God, we love you, and we'll worship you, and we'll serve you, but you've got to act the way we want you to act. We want you to function within these parameters. And if you don't function within these parameters, we will reject you. But what does the Bible say? What does Romans 9 tell us? It tells us that God is great. So great that we cannot possibly comprehend his greatness and his power. Oh, he is infinite in his greatness. He's infinite in his mercy, in his love. But he's also infinite in his holiness and in his sovereignty. And that's a hard pill for us to swallow. And it was a hard pill for the people in Paul's day as well. You'll notice how later on in Romans 9, if you still have that chapter open in front of you in verse 19, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Paul's anticipating another objection, you see. And the objection is this, that if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and you can't work against God, you can't resist God, then is Pharaoh really to blame? Can you really hold him responsible for what he did? Is it not unfair of God to punish Pharaoh for something that he could not help doing? Now that question appeals to our sinful way of thinking. That's, a, that's pure rationalism, that is. We reason things out according to our own human way of thinking, and then we come to the conclusion, however implicit, that God isn't fair. And what does Paul say? The answer comes in verse 20. But indeed, oh man, who are you? To reply against God. Now you might say that's not a very satisfactory answer, Paul. You've got to do better than that. You've got to rationalize this somehow. You've got to make this appealing to our mind. You've got to, you've got to make it acceptable to our, our understanding. Don't just tell me that I am no one to reply against God. But that's exactly what Paul does. He reminds us who we are. We are nothing. We are, in comparison to God, we are like a maggot. Sorry to be so graphic, but I think that hits the nail on the head. There's such a, an infinite distance between us and God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We are weak and sinful human beings, and as such, we have absolutely no right at all to stand in judgment over God and over how He works. That's what Paul is saying. And then to reinforce it, he goes on in verses 20 and 21 to say, Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What a powerful illustration that is. Paul is talking here about potters. Potters are very common in those days. You can see them working in the marketplace and they take this lump of clay 
And they put it on a spinning wheel. And I'm sure you've seen this before. And they take their hands and they, they shape that clay as it spins around that spinning wheel. And they shape it into whatever form they desire. And so the potter is sitting there and he's shaping this clay. And um, it's not quite what he wants. He had something else in mind. So just as he's shaping it, he just decides to squash it and start all over again. Or maybe not squash it completely, but he decides to, to make it a little bit taller. So he squeezes his hands a little bit closer together and it becomes taller. Or maybe he wants it a little fatter on the bottom and so he shapes it with his hands like so and he is completely in control. He is totally sovereign over what he's going to do with that lump of clay. And so it is in spiritual life, Paul says. Whatever God wants to do, it's his prerogative. He is absolutely sovereign. And so I ask again, what is your response to this doctrine? What should be our response? I'll tell you. Our response should be one of humble adoration and praise. We should respond to this doctrine in deep humility and in the fear of the Lord. Because if there's any one doctrine of the Scriptures that makes us realize how big God is, how sovereign He is, and how, how little we are, how nothing, how we are nothing, it is this doctrine. The doctrine of reprobation. Some of you have Reverend Prunk's book on the Canons Adored collection of sermons that he did a number of years ago when he was in Grand Rapids, and he writes this. I want to quote him. He says, The doctrines of election and reprobation are so contrary to the natural man that it will always cause enmity. The carnal mind, Paul says, is enmity against God. It will not submit to God's law and cannot because the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. Only those who are humbled by the saving operation of the Holy Spirit will submit to all of Scripture, also this unpalatable doctrine of reprobation. And then he goes on to remind us of the words of the Lord Jesus who said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. The Lord Jesus here praises God for hiding certain truths from the humanly speaking wise and prudent and revealing them to babes. In other words, Jesus here praises God for his absolute sovereignty. And this is how we need to respond to the doctrine of reprobation. It should cause us to stand in wonder and amazement that God in his sovereign good pleasure bestowed his mercy on us, that he didn't pass us by. It is a wonder of grace that he didn't pass us by. And our response should be, Oh Lord, what a wonder that you chose me. Because I'm no different than the reprobate. I too deserve to be condemned. And it's only of your grace, Lord. It's not because of anything in me at all, but it is only of your sovereign grace. And therefore, I humbly praise you and bless your holy name. Is that your response? Maybe you say, well, this doctrine frightens me, Pastor. If it's true that God's sovereignty determines who will and who will not be saved, how do I know if I'm one of the reprobate. You know, we're going to look at that question next week, God willing. It's in Article 16. But suffice it to say now that anyone who responds to the doctrine of reprobation concerned that they might be one of the reprobate is not one of the reprobate. 
Because the, the reprobate never speak this way. They don't care about the doctrine of reprobation. They don't care about salvation. They don't care about Christ. They don't, consider, they don't care about eternity. They don't care about their soul. All they care about is living for the here and now and the pleasures of this life. They're like the unbelieving Jews of whom Jesus said, you will not come to me that you might have life. It's interesting what Jesus says there. He doesn't say, you will not come to me because God in his sovereign decree has not decreed to bestow faith on you. He doesn't say that. He says, you will not come to me that you might have life. You don't come to me because you don't want to come to me. That's the issue. And so it is for all of the reprobate. Nobody can stand before the Lord in the day of judgment and say, Lord, the only reason why I'm going to hell is because you didn't choose me. In fact, you chose to pass me by. No, the only thing they can say is, Lord, the reason why I'm going to hell is because I had the opportunity to believe, but I didn't. And my eternal condemnation will therefore be absolutely just. Nor should this doctrine be used as an excuse for passivity. No one can say, well, if God has chosen who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, there's nothing I can do about it, then I might as well just sit back and do nothing. There are people also in the Reformed community who do that, who act that way. They don't maybe intend to act that way, but functionally that's exactly what they do. But this also is wrong. The sovereignty of God, beloved, is no excuse for passivity. We must still seek and ask and knock. If you don't seek, you're not going to find. If you don't knock, the door won't be opened. If you don't ask, it will not be given. Oh, instead of an excuse for passivity, this doctrine ought to be a reason for activity. Especially when we consider who the Lord Jesus is. So willing. Able, yes, but also willing to save sinners. And the promise of the gospel is and always has been that whoever comes to him, confessing their sins, believing on him, trusting in him, shall be saved. Yes, the doctrine of election is true. Yes, the doctrine of reprobation is true. It's in the word of God. But it does not in any way diminish the call and the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Still today, the Lord Jesus invites sinners to come to him and be saved. Have you come to him? Amen.